So I am not Nick, if you haven't figured that out yet. <laughs> Nick is out on vacation this week, um, and I am filling in for him. Um, for those of you that don't know, I think I know everyone here, but my name is David Young. Um, I'm one of the elders here at Cross Point. And today we will be looking at Genesis chapter 35, verses 1 through 15. In 1998, Spencer Johnson released a tiny little book that became a bestseller. It's only 94 pages, and it's called Who Moved My Cheese? Has anybody heard of this book before? A couple of hands. So it's a humorously titled book, um, and in this book, he just tells one story. It's the story of two mice and two small miniature mouse-sized people who live in a maze. And every day, these two mice and these two miniature people get up and go find their cheese. Now, he's telling a metaphor where the cheese is, you know, what you desire in life, happiness, your goals, ambitions, and things like that. Um, but either way, these mice get up, and every morning they go to find the cheese. The first day in the maze, they use their heightened sense of smell, and they just go down each path, figuring out which way, until eventually they come to Cheese Station C, where they find their cheese. And they're, enjo they're joyful and happy. The people, very similarly, but with advanced logic and reasoning, as people have, go about and find the way, their way to Cheese Station C. And every morning, the same thing happens. They get up and they make their way back to Cheese Station C, and every morning there's a cheese there for them, all that they need for the day. The people, being smart, start to adapt, and they're like, well, instead of us walking all the way to Cheese Station C, why don't we just build our house and move right beside Cheese Station C? And so they build a house and move in, so that way every morning they can sleep in and just walk next door to the Cheese Station and get their cheese. They put furniture in the Cheese Station so they can be comfortable there and set everything up so that they're nice and relaxed. This goes on this way for weeks and months and years, until one day the cheese moves. The mice wake up that morning, discover that there's no cheese at Cheese Station C, and they immediately begin to scurry off looking for where the cheese went. The people wake up, and they are outraged. They have a little bit more of an emotional response, you could say. Um, they look all over under their furniture. Where did the cheese go? One of the men shouts, who moved my cheese? Which is where the title of the book comes from. And they are exasperated and angry at the injustice of their cheese being removed. And they decide, well, maybe this is just a fluke. Tomorrow we'll wake up and see if the cheese comes back. They wake up the next day. The cheese isn't there. They begin digging into the walls and trying to find where this cheese went, noticing that the mice aren't there either and thinking maybe somebody told the, cheese where the, mi or told the mice where the cheese is and this isn't fair. It's unjust. Several days go by and they are frustrated and angry, and finally one of the two miniature mouse-sized people decides it's time to go out and look for more cheese. The other person says, you can't do that. We don't want to leave. We've built such a comfortable life here for ourselves. We just need to wait until the cheese comes back or keep looking harder. We can't leave what we have. And they argue back and forth, and eventually one leaves and the other one stays. This story has become a bestseller because it resonates with us when we think about change in our lives. Often we have a similar reaction to change. We get angry at first, and then we complain, and then some of us just sit in it. And we're just bitter the rest of our lives about this change that happened. And other people eventually learn to adapt and go and find the new cheese. And 
as general in hum humans, we have a distaste for change. Um, and this has probably been even more evident the past few years. I'm, I'm you know, relatively young, I like to think, and this has definitely been the craziest season of external change in my lifetime that we've undergone. If you think back the past several years, we've gone through a pandemic that radically changed the way that we worked, saw each other, spent time together, played, even for a season how we did church together. Um, the supply chain issues have really changed the way that we've shopped. Maybe I'm the only one that had to give up getting the brand that I always liked because it wasn't on the shelf or that toilet paper that you're so used to having, all of a sudden you have to get the off-brand single ply one that just falls apart. And it just grinds away at the inside of us. Um, even, even more recently, with inflation, things have changed. We were looking at our budget and just kind of dumbfounded at how much we've been spending on groceries. And part of that is due to the fact that our family is growing and so there's more mouths to feed that are eating more. But the other fact is that over the past year, the price of groceries overall has risen by 12%. And so now we're having to learn how do we change? Do we buy different things? And it just grinds away at us. Um, the passage we're going to look at today, it's the story of Jacob's life. And it's a bit of a perspective for us on how we should respond to change. Now, some of you might be here and you're like, you know what, I don't really have change in my life. Things are pretty steady and consistent. I'm happy for you. Um, but to quote the Greek philosopher Heraclides, the only thing constant in life is change. So eventually change will come. So the passage, um, again, is Genesis 35. If you would turn there and join me. Um, and I want to give a little bit of the background of Jacob's life. Um, for those of you that were here oh, four years ago before Nick came, we were working through the book of Genesis, and this kind of picks up where we left off. Um, so the main character in our story is Jacob. He's born in the land of Canaan. Um, he's born shortly after his twin brother Esau. And him and Esau have a contentious relationship. Um, Jacob deceives his brother into getting the birthright and the blessing, and he has to flee home because his brother wants to kill him. So he moves to his uncle's house, um, his uncle Laban, who lives about 500 miles away in a place called Padan Aram. So for perspective, that would be the equivalent of you and your brother getting into a fight and you having to flee and move to New York City by foot. Um, it was a long journey, and on the way, he stops in Bethel to sleep. And here he has this dream, and if you've ever read the passage, it's kind of weird. He has this dream of this ladder that goes up to heaven, and there's angels going up and down it. And then all of a sudden, the Lord appears and blesses him. And the Lord promises him that he will be with him, and he will keep him until he returns back home to this spot again. Jacob vows that if God keeps his promise, if he actually brings him back, then Jacob says, at that point, you will be my God. So Jacob's still on the fence. He's not fully committed to God yet, um, but he is, he's had this vision, which I would think would be enough. But Jacob, if you, if you get to know him, he's a trickster. Um, he likes doing things on his own terms. He hates people telling him how things have to be. He kind of has that younger sibling syndrome where you just have to like rise up and overcome. And so he says, okay, God, if you keep your promise, then I'll worship you. Then you will be my God. So he gets to Padanaram, and he finds his wife, Leah, and his favorite wife, Rachel. Um, he marries two sisters um, because he himself is deceived by his uncle into which woman he's marrying. 
And between these two women, they have 11 sons and a daughter. And Jacob works 20 years for Laban. So here he is away from home for 20 years. And then the Lord calls him to come back and reunite with his family. So he travels back and he makes amends with his brother. Um, He's very nervous about seeing his brother again for the first time. Um, So much so that he sends a bunch of presents ahead of time just to kind of put him in good favor. But Esau welcomes him back, um, is excited to have his brother back, and invites him to come live next to him in Seir. And Jacob, still being a deceiver, agrees that he will go with him, but says, Esau, go on ahead. We have a bunch of little children. We can't move that fast. We'll catch up with you. And after Esau leaves, he goes a different way and goes off to live in Shechem. While in Shechem, a R-rated incident occurs, which you can read about in chapter 34, involving his da- uh, Jacob's daughter, Dinah, and one of the local village men um, who treats her poorly, but eventually decides that he wants to marry her. And so they come to terms where if all the men of Shechem are circumcised, then they will join and become like one people. And while the men are recovering from their circumcision, Levi and Simeon attack the town and massacre all of the men and plunder the town. And that leads us to where we are today. Um, So it's a bit of a whirlwind in Jacob's life, but here we are, chapter 35 and verse 1. God said to Jacob, Arise, go to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourself and change your garments. Then let us arise and go to Bethel so that I may make an altar there to God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears And Jacob hid them under a terebinth tree that was near Shechem. So once again, God appears to Jacob and gives him instructions. He tells him to go back to Bethel. And he says, go to Bethel and dwell there. Um, This is very similar to what the people of Shechem were saying to Jacob. They said, come and dwell with us. And God says, no, go and dwell over here in Bethel. Um, The word Bethel means house of God. um, And Jacob named it that after the first time he encountered God. So God instructs him to go to Bethel, to dwell there. That's going to be his home. And then make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you first fled from your brother Esau. And God is reminding Jacob that the first time he came to this town of Bethel, that he made a vow that he was going to worship God, that he was going to make the Lord his God if God brought him back safely. And now God was bringing him back safely. So Jacob remembers this and knows that he has to prepare his household to go and worship God. So he tells them to get rid of all of their foreign gods. So these gods would have been little idols that they would have had with them. Um, A few chapters earlier, when Jacob leaves his uncle's house, his wife Rachel actually takes some of his father's household gods. It was very common um, for every household to have their own Um, gods that they would worship and ask for help and favor and blessing. Um, Usually this was associated with some sort of like ancestor cult where it would be their ancestors that they would worship. And this was really common throughout the world at that time. And Rachel, wanting to take these with her, steals them from her father um, and brings them with her. It's also very likely that when they raided Shechem, they would have taken the gods of Shechem as well. 
And so they have all of these foreign gods, and Jacob says, we need to get rid of these. We need to leave behind our past. And so they agree, and it says that they gave him the gods which were in their hands and gave him the earrings which were in their ear. It's a little weird, the earring part. Um, what, so what do the earrings have to do with this? Uh, there's two theories why they had to get rid of their earrings. The first is that these earrings would have been something that they would have plundered from the Shechemites, and they would have been either engraved with prayers to the gods or something with the gods, or they would have been little like miniature gods that were on earrings of some sort. Or the other thought is that it was common also for gods which were made of stone or wood to have gold earrings themselves. And by them giving up these earrings, what they're really doing is they're giving up all. They're not saying, okay, we'll give like the idols, but we'll keep back the, the parts that are valuable to us. Because um, these would have likely been made out of gold or other precious metals. They could have been melted down for, for profit. Or even if you um, recall the story of the golden calf, where they melted down all their gold jewelry that they got from Egypt and built this idol. They're getting rid of everything that has to do with these idols. And so they, they go from there and they bury them all under this tree, um, which is in Shechem. So it can be really easy when we're going through seasons of change to cling to things from our past. And Jacob, first of all, they're going to worship God, so they can't have any idols. They need to worship God as the one true God and not worship any other gods. But these are also things that would have been very familiar, especially to Rachel and Leah. These would have been the gods that they grew up worshiping, that were very familiar with them, that they would have believed would protect them and provide for them. And for us, too, when we go through seasons of change, we can kind of look at things in our past, and we hold on to them really tight, and we make them like idols in our life. Um, if you've ever had a baby, oh, how you long for eight hours of sleep again at night. Or if you've ever moved to a new apartment, it's, you just want things to be organized the way that they used to be organized, or to a new house, it's hard to find things to get things situated, and, and the stairs creak a different way, and things are just not the way that you're used to, or it smells a little bit funny, or even when children grow up and move away, you, you still want them to be near. It's uncomfortable having them gone, and what's happening, they're not under your protection anymore. Whenever we go through change in life, even a new job, you might long for the less responsibility that you had at the previous position. And what we do with our longings for the past really defines how we adapt to change. If we hold on to these parts of our past and we, we long for them and we refuse to let go to them, almost making them idols, and we say our life would be better if we just had this, then we really do the same thing as what Rachel was doing when she took those idols. She was holding on to some part of her past, thinking that it would bring her some sort of safety or security. And so we need to examine our lives when we go through seasons of change and ask God, what do we need to let go of? What hopes are we still clinging to from the past? I know this was really hard for Samantha and I when we moved, first moved to Texas. It was really hard to be away from family. That was something that we really cling to and that we missed. And then when we moved from Dallas back to Lima, we really longed to be around a city where there were things to do. And, um, you know, stores where you could go and get, you know, organic groceries instead of only having Walmart or Meyer or Aldi to shop at. And we, we longed for all of these things in each move that we left behind. And eventually we had to just kind of let those go and let them die. 
And so that's one part of change that we have to do is we have to make sure we're not allowing our hearts to cling to something and worship it. We're going to continue reading now as Jacob and his family make the journey towards Bethel in verse 5. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell on the cities that were around them, so they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bakuth. So they set out on their journey, and as they're going, um, just before this chapter, back in chapter 34, after the whole slaughter of Shechem and everything happens, Jacob's really upset at his sons, and he says that you brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of this land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves together against me and attack me, I will be destroyed, both I and my household. Jacob is very afraid of the people around him, but as he goes, it actually is the terror of God that falls on the people. So instead of Jacob being afraid of the people, God is keeping his promise still to protect him and to bring him back in peace. All the way to the end, God is protecting him. And so they travel in peace, and they get there, and he builds an altar and calls it El Bethel. So he goes to Bethel and builds an altar called El Bethel. And Bethel means house of God, as we said, and El Bethel means the God of the house of God. So here he actually calls this place and names it after God instead of the house of God, which draws more attention to God himself. And there again, God reveals, or he builds an altar there because that's where God revealed himself to him before. And while they're there, Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, dies. So Rebecca is Jacob's mother, so this would have been his mother's nurse, the woman who raised him as he was a child. And Deborah is with his family because Rebecca promised to send for Jacob when it was safe for him to come back. So she likely would have sent a member of her household to go and let Jacob know it was safe to return. And so Deborah comes back. So this is someone who would have been very close to Jacob. And while they're there, she dies. And so they bury her under a tree. And they name that tree Albacuth, which means the Oak of Weeping. So this was clearly a very sad time for Jacob and his family. And I, I mentioned kind of all that Jacob has gone through in the past 20 years. It's crazy, just like a life story. If you sat down with a stranger and they said, this is what I've been doing for the past 20 years, it'd be hard to believe. Um, he lived a life of constant change. Um, in seminary, I had to take a class on counseling, which one class on counseling lets you know enough that you're not qualified to provide real counsel. To, to very many situations, it lets you know that you need to refer most people to professional counselors. Um, but one thing that we did go over um, was the topic of change-induced stress. So in 1967, two psychiatrists, Thomas Holmes and Richard Race, studied the effects of change on people and their stress levels and how it affected their health. And they developed this social readjustment rating scale, which measured the amount of stress in your life based on the changes of your social surroundings. And they came up with a list of 40 things, 43 stress-inducing life events that can happen. And you take the test, and you go through, and you check off each event that has happened to you in the last 12 months. And then each one has a point value associated with it. So you, if you've lost a spouse, that's 100 points. And it goes all the way down to 11 points for if you get a speeding ticket. Um, 
And so you kind of just add everything up, and then the grand total is how much change-induced stress you have in your life right now. If you score less than 150, you're doing great. Um, you have very little chance, they argued, of having um, any stress-induced illness over the next two years. If you score between 150 and 300, they said that that likely rises to a 50% chance of having some stress-induced health breakdown. And if you score over 300, you have about an 80% chance of having some major stress-induced health breakdown in the next two years. So during some crazy seasons of my life, I'm like, I'm curious what my score is. And I would go back and take this test and you know, sometimes I would be creeping above that 300 mark, and I was like, yeah, that's what I thought. Things are really crazy right now. I'm very stressed. Maybe I need to avoid any serious change in my life for the next couple of months. Um, I took the test again last night just out of curiosity, and I scored maybe the lowest score that I can remember of getting 136. I finally dropped below that 150 mark, but it's only because it's been over a year since our last child was born, and the next child hasn't come yet, so I'm in this little window, I think. <laughs> Um, then the child comes and it's like you get an extra 50 points for a child being born, you get an extra 35 points for any uh, changes to sleeping, um, loss of sleep or anything like that, and yeah, my score will double come November, I think. <laughs> I was curious about Jacob, and I'm like, okay, well, we know a little bit about Jacob's last year, and I, like, he seems to be going through a lot of change, and I took the test on behalf of Jacob, filling out things that I knew, like one of the things, if you, have you had any major injury or illness? I was like, well, he wrestled with God and his hip went out of socket, so that's probably difficult if you're a nomad and you're traveling around. So I gave him, you know, however many points for that. Jacob scored 452, <laughs> which is just off the charts for what he is going through. And it kind of puts into perspective how chaotic his life is. Yet in the midst of this, he still upholds his vows, his promise to God that he's going to go back and worship God that he's going to make the Lord his God if God brings him back. And so for the first time in his life, really, Jacob begins to prioritize God over himself and his desires. Jacob's faith has been characterized as, I'll trust in God as long as I can do it on my own terms. And now Jacob is going up to Bethel, even though he's afraid to leave Shechem because of the people around him. And he goes to worship God. Even when it's inconvenient for him, he worships in the most difficult times. And now we're going to look at the last six verses of our passage, verses 9 through 15, at God's response to Jacob's worship. In verse 9, God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padanaram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall you be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. And so he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. So God appears to him again. And what this appearance actually looks like, we aren't told. I'm assuming it's some sort of a visual appearance that he could actually see and interact with God. And there God blesses him, changes his name from Jacob, um, which 
if you remember, is heel grabber, basically someone who deceives. And now his name is Israel. He's the ch- he will become the chosen people of God. And God says to him that he is God Almighty, and he says, I'm going to multiply you and bless you, that many kings will come from you. You'll become a multitude of people, and the land that you're on I will give to your offspring after you. These are the exact same promises that God gave to Abraham, Jacob's grandfather, and Isaac, Jacob's father. He extends these blessings to Jacob and then goes and says that the Lord went away the same place that he had come And Jacob, again, sets up a pillar, which would have been a memorial to remind him about what God had promised. And he pours out a drink offering and pours oil on it to anoint it, making it as a sacred place. And he names the place Bethel. So there's all these things around that all have the same name, this area of Bethel. So this is very similar to what happens with Abraham and Isaac. And now Jacob is receiving this blessing. But the order of events is a little bit different. In Genesis 12, Abraham receives the blessing of God, and after God blesses him, then Abraham sets up an altar and worships. In Genesis 26, Isaac is blessed. He receives God's promise, the same promise for land and offspring. And afterwards, he builds an altar and worships. But here in Jacob's life, God actually commands him to go and build an altar first. And so he goes and he builds this altar which is different than the pillar that he sets up after God appears. This altar is where he worships. And after he builds the altar, then God blesses him. And as I looked at this, I thought how easy it is sometimes to rejoice and to to worship God in seasons where you see blessing or you hear a promise of blessing. It's very easy when things are going well to worship, but God commands Jacob to worship when things are chaotic and unsettled. And after that worship, he blesses him. And so as God's people, we need to be able to worship him when we've been blessed and when we're still waiting for God's blessing to come. So throughout this passage, there's been all of these mentions of Jacob's past. Um, In verse 1, God reminds him to go to the place where God first appeared to him. The same thing in verse 7. He reminds him that this is the place where I first appeared to you. Um, in verse 3, Jacob reminds his people that he's going back to, to Bethel to make an altar to the God who has been with him wherever he has gone, which is what God promised to him to do. Um, even in verse 9, we see again the mention of Padan Aram, where Jacob was, where God protected him all those years. And throughout the passage, almost every other verse, there's some little mention of Jacob's past, which reminds him that God has been with him and fulfilled his promise along the way. So when we go through seasons of change, I think there's two things that we can take away from this passage that I want to encourage us with. The first one is that we need to ask God if there's anything in our hearts that we're still holding on to. Are there any, um, any patterns or habits or things from our past that we've had to move on from, but that we haven't let go of in our hearts. And ask God to help us let go of those so we would not hold on to them as idols or something that we worship or look to for comfort. And the second thing is we can reflect on how God has kept his promises in the past and worship even when the blessing isn't there. So if you're going through a season of change, let me encourage you and If you aren't going through a season of change right now, 
remember when you do go through a season of change, because it will come, to take time to pray. Ask God if there's anything you need to let go of from the past that you're holding on to for comfort. And then take time to reflect and thank God for the ways that he has kept his promises. And through doing these two things, I hope that we can be better than the two people who were looking for their cheese and that we wouldn't be grumpy and stuck in our ways, but that we would continue to move forward as God leads us to worship him um, every step of our journey. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for examples that you've given to us of men like Jacob, uh, men who went through difficult seasons, who tried to do things their own way, um, who struggled and, and dealt with difficulty and the consequences of doing things their own way, um, and who eventually turned and served you. I pray that Jacob would serve as an example to us today of how we can serve you, how we can let go of things from our past that we might be holding on to and looking to for comfort, and also how we can thank you for the ways that you have brought us um, to the place that we are, for the ways that you provided it for us, that you've protected us, that you have kept your promises, and that your word is true. We thank you, Father, in your name. Amen.